Hello everyone, Paul Akers, and welcome back to the American Innovator in day seven of our Beyond Band of Brothers tour across Europe. And you know, today was a travel day. We're traveling actually from Belgium to Luxembourg and then on to Munich, but we stopped in Luxembourg at the Luxembourg American Cemetery, and I had no idea what I was about ready to experience. Over 5,000 fallen soldiers in this cemetery that is preserved meticulously and to perfection and with great honor and dignity. We are fortunate enough to hear from the superintendent of this amazing memorial to our fallen soldiers. And he gives us about a 30 minute talk and the end of this video will be his talk on the war and we learn so much. As I'm here, I think to myself, wow, you know, you hear about how many lives were lost in World War II. But until you see all these crosses, it's hard to comprehend really what the loss was. And I look at every one of these. I mean, just look at this guy right here. John Minerick, January 28, 1945. Oh, nice. Evelyn Blazer. Private First Class, January 21st, 1945, just after Christmas. The war is not too far from being over. George A. Abbott, Jr., March 17th, 1945. The war is over in May, not much longer. Sergeant. Leroy Herman. Private First Class, March 18th, 1945. It's crazy. And what I think when I'm walking around here is every one of these people had a family. Every one of these people had dreams and aspirations. Every one of these people wanted to live a full life. And every one of these people gave up their life for our liberty. Never forget. And every day I wake up and get to live a great life, dream about anything I want to dream about, fulfill all my wildest dreams, all on the backs of every one of these people lying here. Because if they would not have stood up to the call of service in another country, none of us would have what we have. Now for the next 30 minutes, you're gonna get one of the most incredible history lessons you'll ever get better than any university from the superintendent of this cemetery. ...of the North. Why did we change our mind? Because as we start to plan, we see very quickly that we do not have a Navy large enough to conduct two invasions on the same day. Keep in mind, we're fighting in the Pacific. That's a seaborne invasion followed by seaborne invasions. We're not going to strip General MacArthur what he needs to fight in the Pacific. And we believe we can be successful in the North with a single invasion. 
of uh, Normandy. Operation of World War II is Operation Dragoon. That's going to be conducted by Alexander Patch, commanding the U.S. 7th Army, and he has the French 1st Army with him. Where'd the French 1st Army come from? It's the French Army caught in its colonies when France capitulates to Germany. It's got two of its best commanders and probably its best units. We're in the colonies where World War II started. We're going to, first of all, fight that army for several days on the beaches of North Africa. It'll, it'll change its allegiance to us. We'll retrain it, rearm it. We're going to take it with us through North Africa, through Sicily, uh, and it's going to take part in the invasion of southern France. General Alexander Patch has four missions, capture, beach, and expand it, which he does. He's to capture the deep water ports of Toulon and Marseille within 30 days. We need deep water ports. We need them badly. Um, and he's to capture the Rhone River Valley and meet General Patton at Sebevnot, Dijon in 90 days. He's going to capture Toulon in 17 days. It's operational on the 18th. It's 100% operational. He's going to capture Marseille on the 21st day. It's going to be operational on the 28th. That's going to become very important because from that moment on, America will be sending one two and a half ton truck up the Rhone River Valley every 14 seconds, 24 hours a day. And that's how we get this army moving again until the Red Ball Express is built. Uh, why is the capture of the Rhone River Valley important? Uh, General, pa General uh, Patch will also arrive at uh, Dijon six weeks ahead of schedule. It's the only time in World War II General Patton was ever beat to any place by anyone. It's done by Alexander Patch. <laughs> Um, the importance of the Rhone River Valley is because of the Loire River. Here's the Loire River. The Loire River physically separates France into two large land pieces. The Loire River dumps into the Mediterranean. We have Army Group G of the German Army in, in, who occupies the Loire River up by Toulouse and Bordeaux. General Eisenhower is convinced that if we can rush an army unit up to the Rhone River Valley at the city of Montalimar, um, the way that the German, the Loire River is too large to span with a combat bridging operation. You would need 32 Bailey bridges connected together to, 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 to span the Loire River. It needs a civilian bridging operation. Civilian bridges don't take several days. They take several, at the very best, several months. And there's not a single bridge across the Loire River. The way the Germans have been getting in and out is they follow the Loire River down to the, Rome, to the Mediterranean. There they connect, they hook onto the Rhone River Valley and they come up the Rhone River Valley. The problem with the Rhone River Valley is on your right side, you have the French Alps. On your left side, you have the Central Massif, like our Appalachian Trail. Uh, at the city of Motelli Mars, where these two mountain ranges meet, and even today, there's only a four-lane highway that takes you through that pass. General Eisenhower is convinced that if we can rush an army unit, put a plug in the Rhone River Valley, we're going to capture all of Army Group G right here in the western France without firing a single shot. It's exactly what happens. The 3rd Infantry Division, with Audie Murphy, shows up the city of Motelli Mars after two days of fighting, along with the with the um, uh, Task Force Butler. Uh, Multilimar is going to be captured. 180,000 German soldiers are now surrounded in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Loire Valley with nowhere to go. They can't cross the Loire. If they do, they're going to slam right in General Patton's Third Army. Uh, and uh, that army is going to become completely ineffective for World War II. Uh, when you look at World War II, people ask, what happened to a third of France? What happened to the Toulouse and Bordeaux? Nothing happened because the Germans couldn't get out. They couldn't get equipment in. They'll just die off. Uh, things go very, very well. Here we are on the 15th of August. We, sh we, we start pushing through France very, very quickly. We're unstoppable. Uh, in September, late September, we're not sitting down to plan how to beat the Germans anymore. We're actually sitting down, the Allied armies are, and making a plan on how Germany is going to be governed when it surrenders. Uh, we are, General Montgomery has promised us Antwerp in Belgium. Antwerp in Belgium is the deep water port that we really need because it's going to allow us to invade into Germany. He captures the city in September. As soon as he captures the city, that was our trigger to bring three more American armies to this fight. We're going to double the size of the American army. We're going to go to 45 to 90 divisions. 
Uh, however, it's premature because we have not captured the estuary. Here's the, you see where the yellow arrow is. In order to get the, the deep water port of Antwerp, which is still today the second, the second largest deep water port behind Rotterdam, uh, we've got to move into the estuary, and the German army owns the estuary, both sides. Anytime we move a ship in there, it's shot. Uh, it's going to take General Montgomery and the Canadians three more months to clean out the estuary, and that's too long. Uh, we now start to run out of equipment again. We can't put any, any more than one truck every 14 seconds on this road. Scientifically impossible. And we start to be incapable of providing this huge army that we have on the ground again. Uh, between September and December, we try to break through the, we have to conduct the Herdigan Forest Campaign, which is a tie. Uh, we tried to break through the Komar pocket in the south with the U.S. 7th Army and the French 1st Army and we're soundly defeated. Matter of fact, we're, we're pushed back almost 60 kilometers and the Army's going to go to rest at the Gulch Mountains in Etanol. In the north, we tried the largest operation, the most the costliest operation we're going to have done in Western Europe, Operation Market Guard. Hollywood calls this a bridge too far. We should have called this a bridge so far, we shouldn't even try it. It's a <laughs> operation in World War II. It is completely backwards from anything we've ever done. You don't send airborne, three airborne divisions into a foreign country and say, don't worry, your supplies are going to catch up to you later. You open up a supply room, then you bring your airborne force. That's not, a, that's not at all what we did. And he brings in Captain Koch and Colonel Gay, and they will follow him throughout the war. The worst news you can get as a member of a headquarters staff is to find out General Patton was your new commander because you're going to lose your job. He's coming with his own team. Uh, so therefore, these are men who work together very, very well. Uh, every other commander, um, uh, inherited the team that was already there. Uh, these plans are, are begun and the Germans strike on the 16th of December. We're going to go to the other map and tell you how we got out of this mess. It's easier to defend a river than it is flat ground. Uh, we're going to give up half of Belgium. We move back to the Meuse River. Uh, the armies in the south are told the same thing. We're really in a lot of trouble here. The Germans are penetrating deep. It's a huge army and we're unable to stop them. General Patton is asked on the 19th of December if there's any way possible he can send anything to the left flank of the Battle of Baldwin, relieve some of the stress. Uh, General, uh, he's asked that at 11.15 that morning. His, his comment, his answer to General Eisenhower is, and I quote, my God, we're already moving. At 8 o'clock that morning, he launched General Gates' plan, Operation Nickel. Uh, that angers General Eisenhower because Operation Nickel is the movement of entire corps. You didn't move entire corps in World War II without telling the Supreme Allied Commander you were doing it. General Middleton and the 12th Corps are headed to the bulge with the 10th Armored, the 5th Infantry, and the 4th Infantry Division. Uh, keep in mind, though, General Patton only has nine divisions. Uh, the Germans already have uh, 25 divisions. It's going to increase to 27. Even the great George Patton's not going to win a battle at one to three odds. He's good. He's not that good. Uh, except for the tactic that he uses. What General Eisenhower wants General Patton to do is because Bastogne is held uh, by these units, it's still free and liberated, it gives us an anchor. We need an anchor because we're gonna bring the third army here, we're gonna make a wall here, we're gonna make a wall there, and we're gonna suck those divisions out of that great hole. And when we do, General Eisenhower is backing the entire army up to the deepest penetration. We have just taken a heck of a hit at the Battle of the Vols. Uh, the war in Western Europe has taken a flip really quickly. That's how much trouble we're in. General Patton, however, has a different idea. General Patton tells his commanders not to take on the head of the snake, the tip of the spear. That's where the combat power is. If you look at the black arrows, uh, you're going to see that only one point did we take the Germans head on, and it's they took us on. That's the very famous Battle of Bastogne. That's why that battle is so famous. Other than that, General Patton allowed these armies to pass. For the most part, they were already passed. What he did was he cut the snake in half and started to chase its tail. That's what he told his people to do. What happens is keep, the, the, the snake idea is a good, a good thing. The power of a snake comes from its fangs. However, the venom for those fangs comes from the body. 
Uh, what General Patton is going to do, he's going to separate those frames from the body. That's supply. That's what cavalrymen do. Uh, that's what Sherman did. That's what Sheridan did. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Pershing did. Um, he's going to strip the army of its ability to wage war. It becomes a huge problem, especially here. This is the 28th of December. Bastogne is liberated. The 6th Armored, the 90th, 26th, are start, have cut the snake of the 2nd SS Panzer Army in half. They're chasing its tail. Right here at Dahlien and Arsfeld, in the Siegfried Line, is where the Germans have stocked 117 million gallons of fuel. Enough fuel for two weeks of operations by five Panzer Armies. After the 29th of December, there are three American divisions there. After the 30th, it's seven American divisions. At the 2nd of January, 13 American divisions are stopping the Germans from getting back to their, to their service station. And they run out of what they need to wage war. It's not very complicated. It's the very same way that the British beat Napoleon. Napoleon was much bigger than the British Army at Waterloo, but all his artillery ammunition was captured. Uh, and it's the very same way the great Roman Empire was beaten by the savage Huns, they called them. The savage Huns got to their bullets and beans and they ran out of what they need to wage war. Uh, it's not a very uh, complicated tactic. It's called exploitation. Um, the things are going very well. As these divisions are liberated, they actually belong to General Eisenhower's Reserve and they belong to General Hodge's First Army up north. These were not Third Army divisions that were surrounded. These were First Army divisions. Because the First Army, the armies in the north and the south, it takes them two weeks to bring their soldiers back to combat. They were in these cities on R&R. Uh, they're not ready for combat operations until the second week of January. General Eisenhower refuses to send divisions to General Hodge if he's not ready to use them right away offensively. So General Patton will command 19 divisions during the Battle of Bombs. In the second week of January, all the armies are back. General Eisenhower looks and says the Germans have taken a huge hit thanks to the Third Army and the Battle of, of, uh, of the Bulge. And we're not going to wait for the spring offensive led by General Montgomery. The Germans, we're ready to strike now. And on the second week of January, we're told to strike through the Siegfried Line all across the front. We do that. In March, we're in line with Trier. Once again, Colonel Koch is going to make his genius know it's General Patton that's fighting for Trier. Trier is Germany's oldest city, and during World War II, it's the most fortified city. Uh, Colonel Koch tells General Patton that the Germans do not have a linear defense, a line of defense on the Western Wall. Uh, that's because they're too weak. Their defense really looks more like a triangle, according to Edward Koch. And from Trier, Trier is the apex of that triangle. And from Trier, you have a leg that takes off southeast to the Swiss border. You have a leg that takes off northeast towards Koblenz. And then the base of the triangle faces the German army because it's the biggest threat. It's 13 million man large. General Penn decides I'm not going to split my army in two and attack two legs of this triangle. Cuts my effort in half. I'm going to remove the apex, make a door, drive in that triangle, and shoot Germans in the back. That is not a new tactic. That is the very same tactic used by the Crusaders to take Jerusalem. General Patton in his memoirs wrote that he was not a great tactician, but he's a great plagiarist, a great tactic. He also wrote that any commander in 2,000 years who claimed to have a new tactic was lying, because there had been no new tactics in 2,000 years. He simply replaced Roman chariots with American tanks to take Trier. On the 16th of March, that afternoon, he got a phone call from General Eisenhower. General Eisenhower warns him not to attempt to take Trier with anything less than four infantry divisions in reserve. And the answer he got was, I just captured it with two. Do you want me to give it back? <laughs> Here we are on the 16th of March. The world ended in May when Czechoslovakia and Poland. That's not to say that World War II ends with the fall of Trier. The Germans will protect themselves by uh, viciously protecting river crossings. We're going to pay very highly for every single river crossing we do. Uh, but we're going to be in Czechoslovakia and Poland on the 9th of May. Um, 87,000 American casualties during the Battle of the Bulge, 122,000 German casualties. Any questions on the Battle of the Bulge? <laughs> Behind our battle maps are walls of the missing. 5,076 soldiers buried in our cemetery. 371 names on the wall.
calls have been missing. Three quarter Dun Dodge truck was hauling a trailer full of landmines and hit a landmine. All the landmines went off and he said Rapucci and Zinden were completely evaporated. He had 61 pieces of shrapnel in his back and claimed he survived because the man behind him took the front of the blast. We're now going to walk into the cemetery. Any units supporting the division and all Army Air Force units that flew missions for that division over seven days. Uh, we started a list, the, the list of missing in action. It was over 4,000 names. It was over 3,000 names long. We then compared that list to soldiers we knew had been killed in action. The list was dwindled down to just about 460. We compared that list to a list of men we knew had been captured, returned to America's prisoners of war. That left us 32 possibilities as to who Soldier X870 could be. Your research then flips and you start to research every individual. That's to say you go up to the top of the list and ask yourself, could this be Private Adams? You discover Private Adams was an artilleryman with the 281st Field Artillery. You find that unit on the date the body was back and you trace back seven days. Just to discover Private uh, Adams was no closer than 14 miles from here. So unless Private Adams was completely lost for a week and had his own Jeep to get back and forth, this is not Private Adams. Uh, we continue the research so the only name that made sense was Private Edward, Pri Private First Class Edward Bates from Maryland. The research is sent to Washington, it's double checked, it's sent to the Joint POW MIA Accountability Command in Hickam Air Base in Hawaii. And all three organizations believe we were above 90% accurate in our research. 90% was the cut was the uh, was the uh, uh, cutoff. We have to be at least 90% accurate in order to go back to a family and request a disinterment. His brother was found in San Antonio, Texas. We requested a disinterment in DNA. We do not conduct disinterments if we don't get family DNA. Uh, that was granted. The body was disinterred on 21 July 2010, flown directly from 3rd Armored Air Force um, Headquarters in Ramstein, Germany, to Hickam Air Base, and using nuclear DNA positively identified on 24th of July as Edward Bates out of Maryland. That family had the very same option families had in World War II. The family could have had him returned here, in which case we would have put him in his vault. It's still there. Uh, with a proper cross, his brother chose to have him buried in our National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. On the 9th of May this year, we disinterred Soldier X-42 in Plot C that we believe is a soldier from Nebraska. And on the following evening, the 10th of, this, uh, 10th of May, we disinterred Soldier 5643 that we believe is Staff Sergeant Ducci out of Oklahoma. If we're correct, we'll be down to 99 unknowns. For every other unknown in here, we have exhausted what we have to research. We need another piece of the pie in order to find out who this soldier was. In some cases, we're down to six, seven names. In other cases, I'll be honest, we don't have a, any idea at all. It becomes very difficult if a soldier was shot out of a boat during a river crossing and taken 15 miles downstream. Also, I'll tell you that in some cases we don't have a lot to work with. There's a vault and casket here that has one right thumb. That's it. One burnt right thumb. However, we continue to look. Uh, technology changes all the time. Uh, several years ago, without nuclear DNA, there's several types of DNA, nuclear DNA being the most technologically advanced. We're one of the few countries in the world that uh, uses nuclear DNA, or has the capability to do it. And so hopefully at some point we're going to identify all of our unknowns. Uh, we're down to 101 unknowns. That's from 263 unknowns on 4th of July 1960. So we've identified the bulk of our unknowns and sent them back to living son and herself and moves to California. General Patton's father will go to Virginia Military Institute. He's actually a lawyer by trade. He dabbles in local politics. He was never in the service. He was a reserve officer. The Patton family becomes very wealthy again because of the large land purchases he does in the areas of San Gabriel and San Marcos, California. General George Patton is burned in California, goes to public school to the age of 14. That was very common in 1899-1900. At the age of 14, a young man was considered a young man. He could handle the family plow or be leased to someone else to handle their family plow. Very few public schools went past the age of 14. Uh, General Patton's family, however, is wealthy, and General Patton 
His father wants to improve his ability, his chances of getting assigned to one of the military academy and hires two tutors to tutor him. It changes his life for two reasons. The two tutors are two brothers and find that at the very young age of 14, General Patton has an incredible, impressive um, um, uh, background on, on military history that dates all the way back to the Peloponnesian and Spartan Wars. Uh, the second thing to discover is General Patton is extremely dyslexic. In 1900, it's not called dyslexia, it's called lazy and stupid. We didn't know what dyslexia was. Uh, so therefore, they, they, the two tutors teach him how to be a copious note taker and do prior planning. His two uh, practices is going to carry with him the rest of his, li his life. And there's no doubt it helps him to become a better commander. His dyslexia is very easy to see if you read the two volumes called the Patton Papers. These are things that General Patton wrote about this thick. He wrote a lot. Um, and you'll see that he never once in his life got the word because right. It was always Becca Sue his entire life. <laughs> uh, and that's dyslexia. And he had it in extreme, uh, extreme fashion. Uh, General Patton will attend both VMI and West Point. General Patton's a two-time Olympian. He represents America in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics and the pentathlon and 1916 Olympics, which are canceled because of World War I. His first combat operation comes during the punitive expedition to Mexico. As Europe is fighting World War I, the 10th U.S. Cavalry under the command of General Jack John Pershing has been given, uh, uh, been given uh, the authority to move into northern Mexico as the Mexican army comes up from the south in the hopes of pinching Pancho Villa and his army of bandits between the two because Pancho Villa has an army of bandits. Uh, he's a young Captain Patton at that point. His first actual combat uh, action comes during the attack on Robio Ranch. Robio Ranch is a walled ranch in northern Mexico. General Captain Patton, here's a rumor that 32 of Pancho Villa's bandits and a very high-ranking commander held up at this ranch. He starts a very bad habit at a very young age. He's going to attack 32 men with nine. It's not the way you're told in the service academy. You attack at three to one odds, not one to three odds. It's the first time America uses mobile warfare because they're going to attack the ranch in two Fords and a Studebaker automobile. <laughs> they get there undetected. He climbs the wall, climbs the roof to do a reconnaissance, and his right foot gets stuck in the roof. He writes in his memoirs, he thought his claim to fame was going to go down in history as that young, arrogant captain who got caught in a roof in northern Mexico and shot in the butt by Mexican bandits. He gets himself out of his predicament, the attack is launched, it's the very first time he takes a man's life with those very famous ivory-handled pistols that we see him carry all the time, um, and he doesn't lose a single man. Uh, he's selected as a commander for a light tank force. America doesn't own a single tank, you don't get any lighter than that. He's going to 17 tanks from the French. The amazing thing is because of his personal wealth, General Patton will pay for a mechanical engineer friend of his on the East Coast to come to Europe. They'll do 41 product improvements on that tank before the American armored crewman gets it. By all accounts, it's the best tank on the battlefield. America will feel the only armored force in all of World War I to have radio communication between tanks, which is a huge, huge advantage. General Patton is only one of two soldiers to receive America's second and third highest award, the Distinguished Service Cross, and at that time, the Distinguished Service Medal. The only other soldier to do that in World War I was General MacArthur. Mm -hmm. uh, General Patton's going to be uh, wounded during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive and spend the last six weeks of the war in the hospital. The interwar years are very slow. Um, we're going to take this four million man army. We're going to crush it to 140,000 men. Uh, General pa Colonel Patton's going to have to take a demotion for a man with an ego as large as George Patton. That's tough. Uh, there's not much going on for 20 years. He, le he learns how to uh, sail a boat in Hawaii. He saves two teenagers from drowning. He drinks a little bit, has an affair. Uh, World War II begins and he's selected as our first commander to take our very first unit overseas to North Africa. We'll take America's first corps to North Africa after after it's been it's been beaten at Kazarine Pass. Um, our General Patton arrives with his corps and uh, he does great and wonderful things. He's, uh, he's promoted to army commander with three corps. He'll take that army through North Africa, Sicily, Rome, and he's relieved of duty by General Eisenhower for the slapping incident of two soldiers at a field hospital. 
Uh, General Marshall back in America wants General Todd's career finished. General Eisenhower will hide him in a closet in England. Uh, things will sort of die out, and when he sees what's happening, he is not assigned a commander to the Third Army yet. The Third Army's ready, he doesn't have a commander. He needs an aggressive commander. He opens that closet, takes George Pad by shirt, tells him to just keep his mouth shut and go lead an army, which he does very well. General Pad's biggest problem, of course, is his inability to keep his tongue in his pocket. Uh, however, when he's leading an army, he doesn't tend to do that. He does very well. We told you about his exploits there. General Pad is commanding the 15th Army in Bavaria when, when, um, when his automobile accident happens. He is scheduled to return to America on the 10th of December, 1945, at the age of 60. He's on a hunting expedition with his best friend and chief of staff throughout the war, General Gay. As they're coming back into Mannheim, he looks behind him and sees the security jeep with the hunting dog in the jeep, and he has PFC Woodring, who's driving the vehicle, stop, go get the dog, because he thought the dog was cold. The dog comes in the vehicle, eight minutes later, involved in an automobile accident. So were it not for the love of a dog, General Patton would have probably lived to be a ripe old age and driven his wife crazy because he wasn't at war. And he's been to war his entire life. Uh, as they're coming back into Mannheim, he's sitting in his, this is the sedan, the type of sedan he was in, and this is the aftermath of the accident. General Patton is sitting on the right side, right here by that rear window. He had his head out the window and he just made a comment to General Gay as to how quick the Germans seemed to be getting back on their feet. He's sitting on his right buttocks. As he comes to pull his head back in, that's when the two and a half ton truck cuts their path. General Patton is thrown forward. There's six people and one dog involved in the accident. The only one hurt is General Patton. His body's thrown forward. The left side of his neck hits the window rail and it breaks the number three and four vertebrae in his neck. He falls to the floorboard. He tells General Gay he knows he's in trouble. He can't feel his fingers. General Patton is paralyzed immediately from the shoulders down. He's got to be taken to Bestfield Hospital we have, which is in Heidelberg. In Heidelberg, his wife Beatrice Patton will be told her husband's in critical condition and paralyzed from the shoulders down. Because of her wealth, Beatrice, pa uh, Beatrice Patton was the late Beatrice heirs of Hamilton, Massachusetts. The heirs family of, family of heirs Massachusetts were ten times wealthier than the Pattons. Uh, she can afford to charter her own airplane with two of the best nurse surgeons in the world and attempt to come save her husband. She will be with her husband the last eight days of his life. About 72 hours before he dies, he's going to be told he's terminal. incapable of stopping the blood clots or reaching his lungs. He's going to die from pulmonary embolism. He's going to drown on his own blood. Mm -hmm. uh, it's at that point General Patton makes two requests through the Army. He requests that nobody involved in the accident be punished because it was an ox accident. The second uh, thing he requests is through his wife, and he requests that she consider leaving him in a cemetery overseas with his soldiers. So for any of you who bought Bill O'Reilly's book, 1990, uh, Killing Patton, I'm afraid you wasted 1995. <laughs> for those of you who haven't, I just saved you 1995. <laughs> um, you're just going to have to wait for his next Killing Someone book. Um, General, initially, Beatrice wants to return him to California. It's only after talking to General Gay she's convinced that she's going to leave him in Luxembourg with the soldiers of the 3rd Army who fought the Battle of the Bulge. Where you see General Patton buried today is not where he's buried in 1947. He arrives to us on the 23rd. He dies on the 21st. He's buried with the general public. This is the initial burial spot. We've not conducted repatriation. There's still 22,000 Americans here. We have wooden headstones. And General Patton was in plot double I. Plot double I was actually in the wood line. To his left is a soldier from the 101st Airborne. To his right is an unknown. It's in 1947 we decide we have to move General Patton. And the reason is he has tens of thousands of visitors a year. They're walking through the cemetery to get to him and they're forming mud ruts, which is disrespectful. It's decided we're gonna move him further up so people don't have to go as far. This is a temporary solution for us. In 1947, this is the center of the cemetery. The center of the cemetery is now the chapel. For superintendents like me who are all hired because we have OCD for symmetry, everything needs to be right. <laughs> this drives me crazy every morning. 
We're going to move an eighth of an inch every year, unknowingly. I'm in the right place after 40 years. Uh, this is a temporary solution for us. Our permanent solution is to place general patent right where the B marker is. That will put them right next to the alleyway. People don't even have to get off the grass. We're in the process of building a ball for them when Beatrice's wife visits unannounced. She's visiting her young son, George Patton. Captain George Patton is going to become um, uh, Major General George Patton of the 2nd Armored Division, an American Vietnam veteran. Uh, she goes to Ply Double I to find him, can't find him, goes to the chapel, visitor center in the forest, which is find out he's been moved without her permission to live. However, when she shows up here, she looks about and she says, this is perfect. This is exactly where he belongs. And we tell her, but we're going to move him again. We're going to move him to the B marker. She tells us, if you move him again, you're going to move him to California. Because rest in peace means something. That puts us in a huge dilemma. The first commissioning of these cemeteries, and the reason they're here is Blackjack John Pershing. John Pershing said after World War I, it's important that America leave a symbol of its sacrifice it made to Europe for World War I, and we did that through monuments and cemeteries. General Pershing was commissioner of the cemetery till 1942. Uh, General Pershing's only policy that he ever wrote for the ABMC was that America was not to make exceptions for burials based on rank or awards. General Pershing said that a four-star general who die in combat and a one-strike private who die in combat become equal on the dates of their deaths, and America was not going to separate them. This is an exception. Uh, since we can't make exceptions, we tell Beatrice Patton we will repatriate him back to America. How serious were we? General Patton was disinterred. He's crated. Uh, just 24 hours after he's crated, a truck is going to take him to, to Trier. A barge will pick him up from Trier, take him to Antwerp. The Navy will pick him up from Antwerp, deliver him to California. That all changes very quickly because of Grand Duchess Charlotte. Beatrice Patton had befriended Grand Duchess Charlotte in 1944. They're already good friends. She's eating lunch with Grand Duchess Charlotte and announces she's taking George Patton back to America. It's Grand Duchess Charlotte who ruled Luxembourg again before, during, and after the war, known as the Golden Lady. Uh, it's a wonderful movie made about Grand Duchess Charlotte. Um, she is, uh, she asked General Patton, General, uh, Beatrice Patton not to do that. She explains to Beatrice that General Patton is a national hero in Luxembourg. Very few Luxembourg towns don't have a Patton Park, a Patton Boulevard, a Patton Avenue. And every town in Luxembourg will claim it was the Third Army headquarters, even if only three seconds. Uh, therefore, Grand Duchess Charlotte allow, uh, gives Beatrice the option of having General Patton buried in the crypt of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the largest Catholic church in Luxembourg. And the crypt is reserved for past Grand Dukes and Grand Duchess, not their spouses, not their children. You must rule Luxembourg to be in the crypt. He's going to be the only man in the crypt that's never ruled Luxembourg. He's not even Luxembourgish. Uh, Beatrice uses that to advantage and warns the U.S. government that you couldn't have defended those towns with battalions. Uh, and they're trying to do it with platoons. Uh, when they got to their town, the platoon leader told Joe to take a five-man squad, take them to a hamlet about 800 yards in front of the town, and make sure the hamlet had no Germans in it. There were, Joe said there were three houses there, uh, a chicken coop, and a barn. Because the private was the youngest member of the platoon, had never been on a reconnaissance, they told him to go clear the chicken coop, feeling he'd be safe. Um, when he came back, he came back from the chicken coop with an egg. He told the squad, I found this egg, what should I do with it? Joe told him, because he was leaving the squad, he said, eat the egg. The soldier couldn't eat the egg, because Joe said none of them had had anything to eat in four days. There was talk about cooking the egg, cutting it in equal pieces. Well, I forget how stupid that was, to get the, just a little bit of an egg. So they took the egg, they put it in a helmet, overturned, put straw in it, and said if any of them were to survive the Battle of Balls, the last man to survive should eat the egg. The only man to survive was Joe Schumacher. All five men died in that town, defending it. Joe Schumacher said he's not eaten a whole cooked egg since the 6th of January, 1945. That's why he made the egg comment. Um, I think we've got time for just one more quick story. This is Frank was 18 years old during World War II. He's a member of the 12th Infantry Regiment, 4th Infantry Division, and he is manning LCI Landing Craft Infantry 561. That's a very famous landing craft because it's the very first landing craft to hit the beach. 
Uh, Joe is on a landing craft with 30, uh, 36 infantrymen, two rows of 18. Frank is the 18th man on the left-hand side. They were told by their company's uh, commanders not to throw themselves over the side of the boat. Their combat gear would drown them. Joe said that when the door to that boat opened, 34, 36 men lost their lives. Only two men survived that boat. Jeff Frank Moore and the man to his right who threw themselves over the side of the boat. He said he started to take his combat gear off, started coming back up. A machine gun round hits the water and, and just stops at about, after about a yard, yard and a half. And Joe said it looked like, it looked like snow. Uh, the History Channel is doing a story on Frank's boat, should be out in about a year, year and a half, and claims through research that that boat was receiving 173 machine gun bullets a second when the doors opened. Uh, Frank said that for 34 of his 36 uh, comrades, World War II lasted two steps in the Normandy Beach and only about three seconds. Uh, after eight weeks of fighting, Frank is the only remaining original member of his company. Everyone else has been killed, wounded, or captured. The new company commander says, we've got to do something for this poor kid. He's already seen enough. We're going to do him a great favor. We're going to send him to a brand new division on Schedule C Combat for a while. And the division he sent to is Sergeant Turner's 80th Division caught in the Battle of the Bulls. On the very morning that they're, so they're talking about the Battle of the Bulls, on the 19th of December, Frank is repulsing his sixth attack of the morning. Frank says that on the, uh, as they're repulsing their sixth attack, his M1 Garand misfires. Remember when we saw Frank, he's approaching 90 years old. He explained immediate action on a, on a rifle like he just, he's a drill instructor. He hadn't forgot a thing. Tapped the magazine, attempted to fire, didn't fire. Stripped the magazine out, cycle the weapon, reload, recycle, attempt to fire, didn't fire. At that point, Frank says, I knew that I had a complete dis malfunction and I had to to completely mis disassemble my, my weapon in the middle of a firefight. Frank said he took his glove off and he browsed up his hand and he said, my trigger finger had been shot off. Frank had no trigger finger. It had been shot off during the Battle of the Balls. We asked him what he did. He said, I started shooting my left hand. He said, I, Frank said, I saw men with open chisels firing M1 Garands on gurneys. That was the Battle of the Balls. After the Battle of Balls, Frank is promoted to Sergeant Frank Moore because according to him, he can tap fight. He can tie faster with nine fingers than most people with ten. <laughs> and he's in an administrative section of General Patton's Third Army in Mannheim. He's been in Mannheim over four months, and he said it was harder to find alcohol after the war than before, during the war. He's been in Mannheim, and he's not had a single beer, he said, for four and a half months. He says the NCO club system is just starting to open, but the beer truck only shows up Friday afternoon. He's got enough beer for 60 men, and he's not ever been one of those first 60 men. So he decides on a fighter to cut out of the office door early at 3.15. Comes out of his office, locks the door, turns around, and runs right over General Pat. He says, I didn't run into General Pat. I said, I ran over General Pat. General Pat is on his back in the hallway in Mannheim, Germany, <laughs> with General Gay, and I'm scared to death. Uh, he said General Gay started to chew him out, and Frank said he was getting in even more trouble because he was smiling because it wasn't General Patton chewing him out. Uh, and he said General Patton got up, dusted off his fanny, put his hand up to stop General Gay, looked at Sergeant Moore and said, Sergeant, you seem to be in a hurry. And Frank said, I said the only thing I could. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, General Patton says, I love to see Sergeant in a hurry, move out. Frank said he was, 10 minutes later, he was drinking his first beer at the club, bragging to people I had to knock over a General Patton. <laughs> <laughs> We'll give you a leaflets on the way out. If you have any more questions, feel free to ask us. So I asked the superintendent when he finished why he did it, and he said, because I'm a soldier serving fallen soldiers.